All right, you can turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 24. If you have one of our Bibles at the welcome table, it's on, it'll start on page 17. The story that we're going to read here in Genesis 24 is a, a transition story of sorts. Abraham's part in God's grand story of redemption is now coming to a close. It's going to end in, in uh, the next chapter, in chapter 25, and the focus is now going to shift from Abraham onto his son Isaac, who will receive the same covenant promises that God had made to Abraham. It's also a story of God's providence. Because while the human roles in God's grand story of redemption come and go, we will see today that God is always carrying this grand story of his redemption forward to completion. But we're not just pawns in, on God's game board. We're not just cogs in God's machine. We're people made in God's image, people uh, to whom he desires to reveal himself and people with whom he desires to be in an eternally loving relationship. And so while there's this sense that, 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 uh, he come, or that we, we get swallowed up into God's grand story of redemption, today we're also going to see that there's this, this really helpful sense for us that God himself personally comes down to us and writes our individual stories of redemption as part of his bigger story. And that means that he is always intimately involved in all things and in every way. In Genesis 24, we'll, we'll see that God is perp- uh, personally and purposefully and sovereignly working in every detail of our lives for our ultimate good and his ultimate glory. I want to pray that God would turn our eyes now to his word in Genesis 24, and then we'll, we'll keep going. Father, we thank you for your word, the truth that is here in it. We thank you for your spirit who leads us into all truth. We pray that you would use both of those to work your grace into your church for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So many of you know that I like to bird watch, okay? Um, you, I probably, you'll probably hear more bird watching stories from me as, as the years go on, okay? Um, back in January, on the 9th of January, I shared with you about my, my futile efforts to go in search of this snowy owl that was uh, reported in the Gridley area, okay? Searched for several weeks for this thing, couldn't find it. I'd been trying to locate, listen, a two-foot-tall white bird that likes to sit on the ground in about a 25-square-mile area that was blanketed with white snow, okay? You can calculate the odds. They weren't great. After I told you that Sunday about my inability to find this bird, I went out the next day to give it a try one more time, okay? When I got out to the search area, I turned off south off of Route 24 down this gravel road and traveled for about a mile until I came to a T-intersection. When I got to that T-intersection, I looked up and out in the field about 100 yards from me, I saw something white that was about two feet tall and it was not snow. You know what it was? It was a snowy owl. If you had any other guesses, you weren't following along, okay? (laughs) It was the snowy owl. Listen, I had driven right to it, right to it. Was that luck? Was that coincidence? I would call it God's providence, okay? 
But what exactly is God's providence? I find John Piper's definition of it to be helpful. He says that providence is God's purposeful sovereignty. In other words, God isn't just ruling over all things at all times. He's ruling with reason. When you put God's sovereignty and God's wisdom together in his relationship with us, what do you get? You get God's providence. Now, what does that have anything to do with me finding an owl in the middle of nowhere on January 10th, 2022? I'll never forget it. The same thing that it has to do with Abraham's servant finding a wife for Isaac here in Genesis 24. Both stories demonstrate God's purposeful sovereignty, his, his providence. And both stories help us deepen our confidence in him and in our dependence upon him. Now, I'm going to come back to the owl in a little bit because it's way less important than God's word. So let's dig into Genesis 24 together. Look with me in verse 1, 1 through 9. Abraham was now old, getting on in years, and the Lord had blessed him in everything. Abraham said to his servant, the elder of his, house, uh, the elder of his household, who managed all he owned, place your hand under my thigh, and I will have you swear by the Lord, God of heaven and God of earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I live, but will go to my land and my family and take a wife for my son Isaac. The servant said to him, suppose the woman is unwilling to follow me to this land. Should I have your son go back to the land you came from? Abraham answered him, make sure that you don't take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from my native land, who spoke to me and swore to me, I will give this land to your offspring. He will send his angel before you and you can take a wife for my son from there. If the woman is unwilling to follow you, then you are free from this oath to me. But don't let my son go back there. So the servant placed his hand under his master Abraham's thigh and swore an oath to him concerning this matter. Abraham's 140 years old at this point. And it's time for him to find a wife for Isaac. Remember, this is a transition story. We're going to be passing the covenant blessings on from Abraham down to his son. And so... What did he do? He's, he's pretty old. He's not going to make this journey. Uh, and, and so he, he put his most uh, reliable and most trustworthy servant up to the task. And even though Abraham was still awaiting the, the final fulfillment of God's covenant promises, the author makes this point to tell us that the Lord had blessed Abraham in everything, had blessed him greatly in everything. Abraham himself was convinced of this, and it was this great faith in God's promises that caused Abraham to make his servant promise two things, okay? Number one, that he would not let Isaac marry a Canaanite woman, and number two, that he would not let Isaac go back to the land that Abraham came from. Abraham had left his homeland when he was 75 years old, and he never returned, never went back, because he trusted God to keep him in the land that God promised to give to him and his descendants. But that land... We've seen this. That land was inhabited by people who did not share in those blessings. We can group them all together under the the, the term Canaanite. In fact, Genesis 9, if you remember back then, tells us that Canaan and his descendants were cursed, while Shem and his descendants were blessed. Do you remember which line Abraham came from? The line of Shem. 
Abraham believed God's promise to bless his son and his descendants and and to bless the world through one of his descendants. And so Abraham did not want Isaac marrying anyone who was cursed and corrupt and excluded from those covenant promises. Don't let him marry a Canaanite woman. Don't do it. But he also didn't want Isaac to go back to the land that Abraham had come from because he knew that the promised land was their home. The promised land was the land that Isaac would inherit. The promised land was Isaac's home just as it was Abraham's home. God had sworn to give them this land. And so Abraham himself refused to go back to the land that he came from when Sarah died. We saw this. last last, Was that last week? Last week or two? Last week. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Look back, okay? We saw this. Abraham refused to go back to the land he came from when Sarah died. Instead, what did he do? He bought a field with a cave in it, big enough to house not only her bones, but his bones and his descendants' bones. We're going to be buried here, Abraham said. Is there anything in your life that you're convinced that you must never return to in order to remain faithful to God? When the servant raised doubts about his own ability to find a woman who would be willing to leave her homeland and come and marry Isaac, Abraham essentially replied, listen, the God who brought me here will also bring her here. He told his servant, the Lord will send his angel before you and you can take a wife for my son from there. The servant would not have to find this woman by himself. God would lead him to her. Let's look at verse 10. The servant took 10 of his master's camels with all kinds of his master's goods in hand and went to Aram Neharim, to Nahor's town. At evening, the time when women came out to draw water, he made the camels kneel beside a well outside, of, outside the town. Lord, God of my master Abraham, he prayed, make this happen for me today and show kindness to my master Abraham. I'm standing here at the spring where the daughters of the men of the town are coming out to draw water. Let the girl to whom I say, please lower your water jug so that I may drink, and who responds, drink, and I'll, also, I'll water your camels also. Let her be the one you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this I will know that you have shown kindness to my master. Remember, this is Abraham's most reliable most trustworthy servant, and yet he knew not even he could accomplish, could accomplish this task that Abraham had given to him. But he also knew the power and the faithfulness of the God of his master Abraham. If he's Abraham's most reliable and trustworthy servant, don't you think that he would have seen Abraham's faith growing in the Lord over the course of his life? And so he prayed to the Lord, and his prayer was very specific, very specific. He asked God for a clear sign that would reveal the woman that God had appointed to marry Isaac. Now, when I was a kid, I had what's called a Game Boy for all of the young ones in here, okay? That's probably back around now. I don't even know. And I really wanted this new game that was coming out. It was called Black Bass Lure Fishing. It was awesome, okay? It was awesome. I wanted it so bad that one night while I was sitting in the basement, uh, I was watching a TV show, and then it went to commercial, and, and, and I prayed, God, if I'm going to get that game, let there be a commercial for it next. I'm not going to tell you what happened. 
but I got the game. <laughs> Here's the thing, though. There is a big difference between what the servant was asking and what I was asking. The servant was asking for a clear sign that God would provide what God wanted. I was asking for God to provide a clear sign for what I wanted. Here's the thing about merchandising. They tend to show commercials for new products all the time. Okay? There's a difference between trusting God and testing God, and we must be careful to understand that difference. Scripture makes it really clear that we should not test God unless God himself tells us to do so. And he only gives us permission to do that in like one way. The servant's prayer isn't prescriptive for us, meaning that we should always pray very specifically like he did. We need to keep his prayer in its proper context here. He was tasked with finding the woman that God, in his providence, had appointed to be Isaac's wife in order to carry on God's covenant promises that he made to Abraham, to the next generation, and the generations to come. It's kind of a big deal that he gets this right. And so he asked God for really really clear help. It's okay for us to pray in specific ways for specific things, but we must be careful not to, return, not, to, not to turn our requests into a test for God. We don't need to spend all of our time looking for a sign when God has already shown us plainly in his word that he generously, willingly stands ready to give us wisdom in abundance if we would only ask for it. See James 1.5. Instead, we should focus on trusting God to make his wisdom known to us when we need it. See James 1.6. The servant wasn't trying to bend God to his will by praying what he prayed. He was seeking to know God's will. May we all pray in that way. The servant was looking for a young woman who reflected the kindness of God and the faith of Abraham, and God was about to show him this woman who fit the bill. Look at verse 15. Before he had finished speaking, there was Rebekah, daughter of Bethuel, son of Milcah, the wife of Abraham's brother Nahor, coming with a jug on her shoulder. Now the girl was very beautiful, a virgin. No man had been intimate with her. She went down to the spring, filled her jug, and came up. When the servant ran to meet her and said, please let me have a little water from your jug, she replied, drink, my Lord. She quickly lowered her jug to her hand and gave him a drink. And when she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I'll also draw water for your camels until they've had enough to drink. She quickly emptied her jug into the trough and hurried to the well again to draw water. She drew water for all his camels while the man silently watched her to see whether or not the Lord had made his journey a success. Notice that before the servant had even finished uttering the words of his prayer, God had already answered it. Verse 15, before he had finished praying, finished speaking, there was Rebecca. Servant didn't know yet that she was the one, but the author leaves no doubt for us. By the time we're here in these verses, listen, back in verse 4, Abraham told his servant to find a wife for Isaac from his family. In verse 15, we're reminded that Rebekah was a, re a relative of Abraham, information that we were also given at the end of chapter 22. 
Verse 16 says that she was a virgin, which meant that she was unmarried and available. And, and, and the speed at which she served was reflective of Abraham's own faithful hospitality. Reminds us of chapter 18 when the angels visited him. And it was reflective of God's own kindness. In verse 19, she said, that what, she said what the servant had asked God exactly for in verse 14. And she said it without being prompted by the servant. Notice that he only asked her to give him a drink. Right? And what was he wanting? Lord, let her not just give me a drink, but also offer it to my camels. He was quiet about the camels when he asked her. She didn't need to be prompted by the servant because God was providentially answering the servant's prayer and orchestrating everything that was happening. The rest of this narrative isn't designed as some of the narratives that we've read to keep us in, in suspense and, and build that tension until we find out that Rebecca is the one who will become Isaac's wife. No, we already know that the Lord has made the servant's journey a success. He's still like trying to figure it out, but we know this. The rest of this narrative shows us the great detail to which God was sovereignly and purposefully involved in everything that happened. Let's keep going. Verse 22. As the camels finished drinking, the man took a gold ring weighing half a shekel, and for her wrists, two bracelets weighing ten shekels of gold, basically an engagement ring. Whose daughter are you, he asked. Please tell me, is there room for your, in your father's house for us to spend the night? She answered him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, son of Milcah, whom she bore to Nahor. She also said to him, we have plenty of straw and feed and a place to spend the night. Then the man knelt low, worshiped the Lord, and said, blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not withheld his kindness and faithfulness from my master. As for me, the Lord has led me on the journey to the house of my master's relatives. The girl ran and told her mother's household about these things. When he realized that the God had answered his prayer, the servant knelt low and he worshiped the Lord. He praised God for his kindness and faithfulness to Abraham and readily acknowledged that all of this was the Lord's doing. As for me, he said, the Lord has led me on this journey. As for me, the Lord has led me on this journey. You know how long that journey was? One way, 520 miles, dragging 10 camels behind you. And you thought vacation in the van was, was bad, right? 10 camels, not just 10 camels, but 10 camels carrying expensive jewelry, like the gold bracelets and, and the ring that was mentioned in verse 22, and other expensive gifts to give both the bride and her family once the servant found her, not once, not once on that 520-mile journey was the servant or any of the men with him or the camels attacked or robbed or detoured off course. And not only that, but when, they, when he got to where he was going, the servant found a proverbial needle in a haystack, the one woman who would become Isaac's wife, and he found her on the first try. Was all that luck? Was it coincidence? The servant himself called it God's providence in verse 27. As for me, the Lord has led me on this journey. And he worshiped the Lord who sovereignly and purposefully guided him along the way. Let's keep going. Verse 29. Now Rebecca 
had a brother named Laban. And Laban ran out to the man at the spring. As soon as he had seen the ring and the bracelets on his sister's wrists, and when, she, when he had heard his sister Rebekah's words, the man said this to me, he went to the man. And he was standing there by the camels at the spring. Laban said, come, you who are blessed by the Lord, why are you standing out here? I've prepared a house, the house and a place for the camels. And so the man came to the house, and the camels were unloaded. Straw and feed were given to the camels, and water was brought to wash his feet and the feet of the men with him. A meal was set before him, but he said, I will not eat until I have said what I have to say. So Laban said, please, speak. Notice the hospitality that Rebekah's brother Laban showed to the servant and all of those that were traveling with him. It's comparable, once again, to Abraham's hospitality when the angels came to visit him back in chapter 18. In verse 50, we're going to see that Rebekah's father Bethuel was still alive, but it seems from these verses that Laban had assumed the leadership responsibilities of the family, so he's going out of his way to show all of this hospitality. When he saw the gifts that Abraham's servant had given to Rebekah, and then he heard Rebekah's own version of the story, what she had to say about it, he went above and beyond to care for the servant as well as the men and the camels that had come with him. But the servant, once they sat down for supper, he would not eat until he got to share his side of the story, until he got to share the whole thing so that they could all see what God had done. He was so convinced of God's providence in this situation that he was more concerned with fulfilling his mission after a long journey than he was with filling his stomach. Look at verse 34. I'm going to read for a stretch here. I'm Abraham's servant, he said. The Lord has greatly blessed my master and he's become rich. He's given him flocks and herds, silver and gold, male and female slaves and camels and donkeys. Sarah, my master's wife, bore a son to my master in her old age, and he's given him everything he owns. My master put me under this oath. You will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites in whose land I live, but will go to my father's family and to my clan and take a wife for my son. But I said to my master, suppose the woman will not come back with me. He said to me, the Lord before whom I have walked will send his angel with you. And make your journey a success, and you will take a wife for my son from my clan and from my father's family. Then you will be free from my oath if you go to my family and they do not give her to you. You will be free from my oath. Today, when I came to the spring, I prayed, Lord, God of my master Abraham, if only you will make my journey successful. I'm standing here at the spring. Let the young woman who comes out to draw water, and I say to her, please let me drink a little water from your jug from your jug, and who responds to me, drink, and I'll draw water for your camels also. Let her be the one, the woman the Lord has appointed for my master's son. Before I had finished praying silently, there was, <coughs> excuse me, there was Rebecca coming with her jug on her shoulder, and she went down to the spring and drew water, and so I said to her, please let me have a drink. She quickly lowered her jug from her shoulder and said, Drink, and I'll water your camels also. So I drank, and she also watered the camels. Then I asked her, Whose daughter are you? And she responded, The daughter of Bethuel, son of Nahor, whom Milcah bore to him. So I put the ring on her nose and the bracelets on her wrist. And then I knelt low, worshiped the Lord, and blessed the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who guided me on the right way to take the granddaughter of my master's brother for his son. Now, if you are going to show kindness and faithfulness to my master, tell me. If not, 
tell me, and I will go elsewhere. It's like the servant was reading the first 27 verses of chapter 20, uh, 24 right here. And the rest of, to, uh, to Laban and, and, and to the rest of Rebekah's household, they had not heard the story yet. They heard Rebekah's version of it. And so they needed to hear it. But listen, we've already heard this in the first 27 verses, right? So why do we need to hear it again? Why didn't the author just summarize this part and say the, servants, uh, the servant t- told Rebekah's family everything that God did? Because he wants to make it glaringly obvious that all of this was God's doing. Listen to the phrases. We get to hear these phrases once again that we've already heard. Phrases like this. The Lord has greatly blessed my master, Abraham. The Lord will send his angel and make your journey a success. Lord, God of my master, Abraham, if only you will make my journey successful. Before I had finished praying, there was Rebekah. Then I knelt low, worshiped and blessed the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who guided me on the right way. Do you see God's providence as the servant did? Laban called the servant blessed by God, and the servant was quickly or was quick to point out that he was but a servant of Abraham, and Abraham was the one who was greatly blessed by God. The servant told Rebekah's family how God had shown his kindness and his faithfulness to Abraham, and he wanted to know right here if they would follow suit. Would they see God's providence as he did? Let's find out. Verse 50. Laban and Bethuel answered, this is from the Lord. We have no choice in the matter. Rebecca is here in front of you. Take her and go and let her be a wife for your master's son, just as the Lord has spoken. When Abraham's servant heard their words, he bowed down to the ground before the Lord. And then he brought out objects of silver and gold and garments and gave them to Rebekah. And he also gave precious gifts to her brother and her mother. And then he and the men with him ate and drank and spent the night. <coughs> Excuse me. It's customary, it was customary to spend several days with the wife's family before she left to marry the man to whom she was betrothed. And so Laban and Milka's request here wasn't out of line. They weren't trying to, to stall or delay. But Abraham's servant didn't want to wait. Didn't want to wait any longer. He bound himself under an oath, remember, to Abraham that he would go and search for a wife for Isaac. And God had so definitively led him to Rebekah and made his journey a success that he did not want to wait to get back to Abraham and fulfill that oath. This is his most trusted and reliable servant. He loved his master. He wanted to go show him what God had done, even though Abraham told him, God will do it. When they asked for Rebecca's opinion, it wasn't to see if she was willing to marry Isaac. It was to see if she was willing to leave early to go back with Abraham's servant. And her reply conclusively answered the question the servant asked Abraham back in verse 5. Remember? He said, suppose the woman is unwilling to follow me to this land. Rebecca's answer, I will go. I will go. Look at verse 50, uh, uh, that last part of verse 58, actually. Nope, hold on. Am I there? I already read it, didn't I? 
I just kept, I just kept going. Listen, this is the longest chapter in Genesis, okay? 59, 59. So they sent away their sister Rebecca with the one who had nursed and raised her. That's Deborah. We'll find out about her later. And Abraham's servant and his men. They blessed Rebekah, saying to her, Our sister, may you become thousands upon ten thousands. May your offspring possess the city gates of their enemies. This blessing matches God's promises to Abraham in Genesis 22. Right after God provided the, lamb, the, the ram as a substitute sacrifice for Isaac, and right before the narrative in chapter 22 mentions Milcah and Nahor and Bethuel and Rebekah. Genesis 22, 15 through 18. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, this is the Lord's declaration. Because you have done this thing and have not withheld your only son, I will indeed bless you and make your offspring as numerous as the stars of the sky and the sand on the seashore. Your offspring will possess the city gates of their enemies and all the nations of the earth will be blessed by your offspring because you have obeyed my command. Just in case we needed any more convincing that God was the one who chose Rebekah for Isaac, her family sent her off with the same covenant blessings that God himself had promised to Abraham and to Isaac and to their descendants. Is that luck? Is that coincidence? Providence. Look at verse 61. Then Rebekah and her female servants got up, mounted the camels, and followed the man. And so the servant took Rebekah and left. Now Isaac was returning from Bir Lahai Roi, for he was living in the Negev region. In the early evening, Isaac went out to walk in the field and looked up. Looking up, he saw camels coming. Rebecca looked up, and when she saw Isaac, she got down from her camel and asked the servant, Who is that man in the field coming to meet us? The servant answered, It is my master. So she took her veil and covered herself. Then the servant told Isaac everything he had done, and Isaac brought her into the tent of his mother Sarah and took Rebecca to be his wife. Isaac loved her, and he was comforted after his mother's death. The servant still had to make the 520-mile trip back to Abraham. This time, not only with the camels and the men that had come with him, but now also with Rebekah and the women that left with her and all the expensive gifts that he had brought and then given to her and now will bring back with her. Not once on that 520-mile journey was the servant or any of the men or the women or the camels with him attacked or robbed or driven off course. And what's more, Isaac was also making a trip back to Abraham from where he had been, been living in, in Bir Lahai Roi. Do you remember what Bir Lahai Roi means? We learned it back in chapter 16 when God came to, ha to Hagar in the wilderness. It means the well of the living one who sees me. It's a pretty providential name for this situation, isn't it? Think of how perfect the timing had to be for Isaac to head back from Abraham to, from one place 
and Rebecca to head back to Abraham from another place. It's like one of those math problems nobody likes to do, right? Abraham's traveling at 2.4 miles an hour with six camels, and Rebecca is coming, right? Think about all of the calculations, all of the timing that has to happen where they're traveling to the same place from different directions at different times, and they both end up in the same place at the same time. Only the living one who sees them both can accomplish that. I want you to imagine the scene with me for a moment. Now, I'm taking a little bit of liberty here, but I want you to think about this. Perhaps when Abraham's servant and his caravan got into the area, they turned south off the main road and traveled for about a mile down a dirt road and came to a T-intersection. And maybe when they got there, Sarah looked up, Sarah, Rebecca looked up, and about 100 yards out in the field, she saw someone, but it wasn't Abraham. It was Isaac. And God had driven her right to him. Right to him. When they got to him, the servant told Isaac everything that he had done. This time, maybe as an act of mercy, the author gives us a summary statement. He doesn't need to spell it out in detail for us a third time. Why? Because by now we should already be convinced that God's hand was in this thing from start to finish. And the final verse of the chapter highlights a key event in fulfillment of God's promise to make Abraham into a great nation. It says, Isaac took Rebekah into Sarah's tent and took Rebekah to be his wife. So now Rebekah has taken Sarah's place as the matriarch just as Isaac will take Abraham's place as the patriarch. The covenant is moving on because God is continuing to carry out his grand story of redemption. He's moving it forward. But Isaac and Rebekah weren't just pawns on God's game board or cogs in his machine. God loved them and was personally involved in their lives to bring them this blessing. The chapter finishes out with evidence of God's sovereign care and his wise choice. What does it say? Isaac loved and was comforted by a woman that he had just met. Why? Because she was the woman that God had appointed for him, as we heard twice earlier in this chapter. What does all this have to do with me finding a snowy owl? Am I saying that what God did for me was just as important as what God did for Abraham's servant in all of this that we just read. On the one hand, I can and I should answer that question with an obvious no. God's covenant promises weren't riding on him leading me to a snowy owl. On the other hand, God leading me to a snowy owl brought me great joy in his covenant promises and that is tremendously important to me. Do you want to know why I birdwatch? Because the Bible tells me to. I'm serious, listen. Matthew 6, 26. 
Look at the birds in the air. There it is. Go get you some binoculars. We should all be bird watchers. That's not all that verse says, though. <laughs> Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father, what? Feeds them. Are you not more valuable than they? And then he goes on to talk about the lilies of the field and the clothing that they get from the Lord. And that chapter, or that, that passage, Matthew 6, finishes out this way. Matthew 6, 31 through 34. So don't worry. Saying, what will we eat, or what will we drink, or what will we wear? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all of these things will be provided for you. Therefore, don't worry about tomorrow because tomorrow will worry about itself. You can't do it on your own. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Every time I go out and I look for some weird bird that nobody else cares about except for the other nerds like me, I, whether or not I find that bird, I always see birds. I always see birds. And every time I see the birds, it reminds me to seek something far greater than any bird I could ever find. It reminds me that the God who is taking care of those birds is the same God who is taking care of me. And he himself has told me in his unchanging word that I am more important to him than any bird. And so are you. God's providence is the same whether we're looking at it in Genesis 24 or along Route 24. Was that luck? Was that coincidence? God also knows I like Wordplay. Listen, in every case, in every case, God is working his sovereignty and his wisdom together in his relationship with us to carry out his purposes for our ultimate good and his ultimate glory. There is no moment in your life, big or small, in which God does not exercise his divine providence. Think about all the events that happened in your life last week. Just go, go back to yesterday for a minute. Can you see God's providence there? It would be a good exercise. Sometimes it's strange providence where it feels like God isn't really there or doesn't really care. Sometimes it leaves us with more questions than it does answers. Sometimes in God's providence, we don't actually find something, we lose something. But that's why he's given us his word. That's why we have Genesis 24 and thousands of other examples between here and Revelation. 
because his word teaches us to recognize his providence in all its shapes and forms. Listen, the book of Job shows it just as much as we just saw here. And as we see those things, as we recognize God's providence in his word, it encourages us then to trust him in our lives. When you don't see it or understand it, you can still be confident that God is working personally and patiently and silently in the background to use whatever trial or hardship or success that he's allowing you to go through to bring about his ultimate purposes and your ultimate good. What God did for Abraham's servant and ultimately for Isaac in their part of the story ultimately points us to what he's doing in the bigger story of redemption. You know what God's doing? He's finding a bride. And he's preparing her for his son. The church is the bride of Christ. And he gave himself for her. In order to bring her to himself. Jesus came into the world as a servant. With a tremendous task. But it is one that only he could accomplish. And in the ultimate display of God's providence, Jesus offered himself up for us as a sacrifice for our sins so that we could be forgiven and cleansed and found once and for all. And he rose from the dead so that we could be united to him forever in eternal life. And one day soon, he's coming for his bride. He's coming for his bride. John Piper wrote a book, providentially called Providence. And in that, he wrote this. The death of the Son of God ransomed a people for God from every tribe and language and nation. The transaction between the Father and the Son in the death of Christ was so powerful that it secured absolutely for all time and eternity everything needed to bring the bride of Christ safely and beautifully to everlasting joy. We will not be robbed. We will not be, we'll be attacked, yes, but we will not perish. And by God's grace, we will not be detoured. Are you part of this bride? Have you been reconciled to God through Christ? Have you received forgiveness for your sins and eternal life in him? Perhaps you're trusting in something or someone other than Jesus. Maybe you're trusting in yourself. Maybe you don't know who you can trust or what you can trust. Let me just ask you this. Do you think it's luck that you're here today? Is it coincidence? You want to know what I would call it? It's God's providence. It's God's providence so that you would see the trustworthiness of his word and experience his grace through his son. God has sovereignly and purposefully led all of us from every direction here today to this spot at this time together. 
and he's led us to Christ, his son. So if you don't know him, why not confess your need for him this morning? Why not put your trust in him? Providence is God's purposeful sovereignty. God isn't just ruling over all things at all times. He is ruling with reason. He is personally, purposefully, and sovereignly working in every detail of our lives for our ultimate good and his ultimate glory. He's intimately involved in our lives as he carries his grand story of redemption forward to completion. And he continues as he comes down to us, to you and me, and writes our stories of redemption. He continues to deepen our confidence and our dependence upon Christ along the way. And when our story is complete, when the story is complete, and we come to the end of the road and we look up and we see our bridegroom, may we all say confidently along with Abraham's servant, the Lord has led me on the journey. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we would be lost, hopeless, helpless without it. We thank you that you have come to us in every way, in all your grace, to bring us to your son. We thank you for your providence. In Jesus' name, amen.